0: If you have your Bible with you, if you brought one with you, would you open it up to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 3. If you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the racks around you. And If you don't own Bible, we have free Bibles in the back this morning. You can pick one up when you leave. They're on that brown table in the back. Really love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Best thing you can own, right church? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I'm aware that um, as a result of the election this last week, that Gary referenced a little bit ago. Um, that, that There's a lot of people genuinely very excited, and at the same time, there's a number of people, quite a few people, who are generally disappointed, right? And um, I've even you know, seen social media posts of individuals who are really fearful of the next four years, not knowing what to expect. I, I just want to remind you this morning, if that's you, if you're in that place this morning, God takes away all fear, okay? What he did at the cross eliminates fear. And and so that requires you to know who you are, who your identity is in, because God says perfect love casts out fear. So I feel a bit of a responsibility this morning to remind you of who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this verse that you're about to see on the screen is, is true of you. I want you to see Colossians 2.14. It's kind of an anchor for us as we go into Romans chapter 3. It says this, He made you alive together with Him. That, that's, that's who you are, right? That you're, you're alive in Christ. But he says this is what you are. You've been forgiven. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. That's God. He just eliminated, evaporated. If you're new to church, and you're not in a relationship with God, and you wonder what does that mean, I want to show you this morning, very clearly, the Bible is very clear, there is a direct path to God. And not many paths. There's one specific path. And it's not based on anything we can do. We can't earn it. Now that's a hard thing for people to hear. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's hard for people to hear that they can't earn it because naturally we want to do things. But the truth is you can be made right with God. You just can't be made right with God on your own terms. Now here's the easy side. If that's the hard side, here's the easy part. It is completely dependent upon God's provision, not on my performance. That's a great truth. It's completely dependent upon what God does, not on how I perform. These truths, if you've ever wondered what makes Christianity different, these truths set Christianity apart from everything else on planet Earth. God says, this is true, this is who I am. So let's jump into Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It's kind of a complex verse, but we're going to break it down and help you to understand it. It starts out this way, the last part of verse 24 is in brackets there. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed." Now many people are looking at that going like, what? What is that saying? It's like a theological mouthful, right? If if you're not really tracking in Romans, you might be looking at that, thinking, how do I understand that? Let me put it in context for you. When we started studying the book of Romans back in June, by the time we got to verse 18 in chapter one, we saw Paul begin making an argument. And his argument was, "The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And as a result of going from verse 18 all the way to chapter three, verse 20, he came to the argument that all of us are covered in sin. We're all under sin, under the wrath of God. Now that's the context. Here's the big picture. Because we cannot become righteous on our own, God has to make a way for us to become righteous through a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was not made deep inside the chambers of the Holy of Holies or in some hidden closet. But rather, God made it openly on top of a craggy hill for all the world to see. Lifted high up on a cross, God put God on display. What I'd like to do with you is unpack verse 25 so that you really understand how to apply it to your life. We're told in verse 25 that God displayed Jesus publicly and He made Him a propitiation. Now that is a word you don't use every day, right? Okay? propitiation has this idea of an appeasement behind it, something that's done to appease something else. So Paul is using a really ancient word here to describe an action of Jesus, and he's saying Jesus became a propitiation. Now, if that word is not difficult enough in the English language, it's actually an interpretation of a Greek word which is an interpretation of a Hebrew word, okay? Not to make it too complicated for you, so I'm gonna break it down so that you understand it. Let's look first at the Greek word. It's in your notes, and you're gonna see it on the screen. It's this word, hilasterion. And it's talking about an atoning victim, but it's also talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how can it be talking about both? How can that be describing something that's animate and something that's inanimate. How is that possible, this mercy seat? Well, let's back up to the word propitiation again. There's a few problems with this word. It's not familiar, it's not known in the English language, right? Like try using it in a sentence this week when you're talking to your friends, okay? Just take a shot at it. Or, or do like, remember when Jay Leno used to host The, the Tonight Show? and he would do the man-on-the-street interviews, and he'd walk out, and he would ask people bizarre questions. Do that with propitiation. Just say to somebody, hey, so can you tell me about propitiation? And they're going to say, like, what are you calling me? Right? Or they're going to punch you because they don't know that word. Now, that's the, one of the problems, with it, but here's the major reason people don't like that word. Because it means a removal of wrath to appease something. And some people find the concept of God's wrath so offensive they want to reduce its meaning they want to take it away because if there's no wrath there's no need for propitiation now there's the greek meaning we looked at the english meaning the greek meaning here's here's the hebrew meaning this is really going to help you put the 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 pieces together i want you to see on the screen the hebrew word now for propitiation notice that it's used specifically and only of the lid of the ark of the covenant And you find it used many times in the Old Testament, specifically when God is giving instructions to Moses, and he said to Moses, I want you to do something, Moses. I want you to take this capereth, this lid, and put it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Look with me on the screen at Exodus 26, 34. You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the Holy of Holies, now, when people in Western world thinking, mostly in America, think of the Ark of the Covenant, immediately our minds go to Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So since your mind's already going there, I want to put that image on the screen for you, okay? Just, just look at it. You got, you got Indiana Jones. He's found this treasure. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And, and he goes to battle in the movie against the Nazis, right? You're familiar with the movie. That's what we have locked in our head about what the Ark of the Covenant is is but the ark of the covenant in reality was completely hidden from public view it was deep 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 in the inner recesses of the holy of holies not even in the holy place and the high priest could only see it once a year and on that one day a year he was able to go in through the holy place into the holy of holies the inner chamber of the inner chambers And there was this golden ark, the ark of the covenant. Leviticus 16 gives us a very clear image of what was going on with this ark. I'm just going to leave the image on the screen for you to appreciate this just for a minute. The high priest had a responsibility to take the blood of a sacrifice And bring it in through the holy place, into the Holy of Holies, and stand before the Ark of the Covenant, in between the wings of the angel's wings that you see spread out over the lid of the Ark, is the place known as the Mercy Seat of God. And at that place, the high priest had a responsibility to sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on top of the lid of the Ark. It may sound incredibly gory to you, but the other thought might pop into your head of why Take something so beautiful, it's made of pure gold, and put blood on it. Why would God ask them to do that? Now, remember what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. God told Moses that when they built that, they were to take the Ten Commandments, God's righteous standard, and place them inside the Ark of the Covenant. Those standards were God's laws, God's standard of behavior, but man broke God's laws because we're all covered in sin, right? We carry out sinful activities. So God has a requirement that when the sacrifices were killed, the blood would be sprinkled over the cover of the ark to atone for the broken laws of God that are inside the ark of the covenant. By doing that very thing, instead of people receiving death, the sacrifice received death on their behalf. Instead of the people who deserved death, they didn't receive death, but the sacrifice did. So catch this. Once a year, blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. Payment has been made for the sins of the high priest, for the sins of his family, for the sins of the entire nation but that particular act had no power whatsoever to remove sin it only covered over sin because that action is pointing to something future it was a symbol of something that was yet to come the true and effective propitiation the only propitiation acceptable to god had to be made by god because as we saw last week anything that you and i can bring to the table it's like dirty rags, right? God says, your righteousness is as filthy rags. I have to step in on your behalf. So for that very reason, this will help you to understand 1 Timothy 2.6. You'll see it on the screen. For that very reason, Jesus gave himself. Jesus had to come as a ransom for all of us. Hebrews 10.14 backs it up. It says, for by one offering, he perfected for all time. You know why that's good news, church? Because you don't have to go looking for a turtle dove this year to make an offering, right? You don't have to go find a perfect yearling lamb, spotless, unblemished, because he did it once for all time, and that ransom was paid in his blood. That's why it's a blood sacrifice. Now, we'll understand that a little bit more as we go forward, but remind yourself this morning, you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, because nothing else Nothing else could buy you. 1 Peter 1.18, we looked at this last week, look at it again. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So that means no longer do you need a holy of holies. No longer do you need a temple. No longer do you need somebody to go in there on your behalf. You have been given one sacrifice for all time, Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, verse 25 says He did this to demonstrate something. Look closely at the verse if you have your Bibles open. It says He did this to demonstrate something, to demonstrate His righteousness. God did this to exhibit His justice. So that saving act did many things, but one thing in particular it showed it showed that your God is a forbearing God. How do you get that, Mark? We'll link what it's saying here. To demonstrate His righteousness in the forbearance of God. Meaning God does not rush to punishment. God does not rush to punishment. That's not His nature. Now there's a problem with that. Justice demands punishment, doesn't it? If something is just, it demands punishment. We live in a moral universe, and justice demands that the guilty be punished. But yet verse 25 says, in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now, that's a conundrum. That makes people stop and say, what, what? He is allowing sins of an earlier time to go unpunished? How can that be? I live in a moral universe, and a moral universe requires sins to be Punished. How can he let something go unpunished? There's an old proverb that says that um, old sins cast long shadows, right? Just process that thought for a minute. Old sins cast long shadows. Here's what it's saying. Even though something was done in an earlier day, the sins still linger. There has to be something atoning for those sins that are still hanging around. What you're seeing here from Paul is not neglect on God's part. Paul's not saying this is neglectful. He's saying there's a decision that's been made here to allow something to be unpunished temporarily for a period of time. And you should be grateful for this truth because before you met Jesus Christ as your Savior, did He not allow your sins to go unpunished? right, He did that for all of us. He's allowed our sins to go unpunished until you meet Jesus Christ as your Savior and recognize who He is then your sins are taken care of. But before Jesus, God is forbearing and He's tolerant of people's sin to a point, temporarily in this case, He allowed sins to be passed over. The sins of the Old Testament individuals before Jesus had died, but then came a point when God demonstrates His righteous nature. When God brings forth the punishment, He does what justice requires. There must be an atonement for sin. And Jesus on the cross becomes punishment that satisfies the righteousness of God. It's a very simple truth to understand, and God's righteousness is revealed in that. So in that, as you'll see in verse 26, God, as a result of that, becomes both just and the justifier. Now, last part of verse 25 we move, before we move on to verse 26, we're told that God displayed Jesus publicly. He put him on display. There's the second Greek word in your notes this morning. You'll see it up on the screen. It means to place something before as an exhibit. In other words, God exhibited God. So catch this. God the Son leaves heaven in agreement with God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Son condescends to become Jesus the Man on planet Earth. He is set forth before the planet by God the Father, as a propitiation, as a propitiatory sacrifice. Why publicly, though? Why do this in such a way that it's on display instead of in the Holy of Holies, hidden away? God says, I'm not doing this in the Holy of Holies. I'm doing this publicly because my mercy is going to hang on a cross. My mercy is going to be on display for all the world to see. I'm going to be despising the shame. I'm going to carry your sins so you will know the price that I paid for you. It cost me everything. So let's review the context of what we've just looked at. Because Paul's used some really heavy artillery here. Verse 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, he starts off this way, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." And by the time you get to verse 23 of chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And unless that wrath is dealt with, unless that wrath is removed from your life, you're still in that place. You're still under God's wrath with absolutely no hope. So the Bible, especially in Romans, forces you to account for two specific things. They're in your notes this morning, but I want you to see them on the screen as well. It forces you to account for the fact that God's wrath is real. Whether you think it's real or not, God's wrath is real, and it's directed towards sinners. Part B, the removal of that wrath is only possible one way, by God Himself. He's the only one that can do it. So sum it up this way, God's wrath is revealed, but God's righteousness is revealed as well. And in his forbearance, he allowed sins of an earlier time to go unpunished. But in a moral universe, sins must be punished. Jesus' death on the cross results in the removal of God's wrath from believers That's the truth of God's Word. So catch this. This is worth an amen. God's own righteousness satisfies the righteous nature of God. That's truth of God. So God put God on display. And when God is on display, at the very end of the display, he says, it is finished. Because he accomplished everything that he had to accomplish. So, we receive this truth. We receive this reality through faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He can do what I cannot do, what I'm incapable of doing for myself. You might even want to whisper this back to God today, maybe even right now, under the quietness of your own breath. Just say back to God, Jesus' blood is my propitiation. I don't know if you'll ever use that word again. Jesus' blood is my propitiation. But let's go into verse 26. It's going to move fairly quickly. It's, it's not as complex as verse 25. Verse 26 says this, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're told that this has been done in order to demonstrate something. In order to demonstrate His justice, God did something God the Son condescended to planet Earth, and God presented Jesus as the initiated sacrifice, the one who would be the exchange of life. By how? By the shedding of blood. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've put your belief in something very specific. I want you to understand this. Maybe you've always wondered, what does this belief thing mean? You're going to understand it by the time you leave today. By having faith in the value of his blood, God's broken law is covered for you. Are you following the thinking? Think of the high priest going before the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. That high priest on behalf of the nation is believing that in that blood of the sacrificial animal, It will atone for the laws that are broken inside the Ark of the Covenant. God's righteous standard had been broken. There had to be an atonement. By having value, faith in the value of Jesus' blood, God's broken law is covered. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are able to have applied to your life the righteous standing of the sacrifice. So if you've lost everything else this morning, you didn't catch all that's being said, don't leave here this morning without catching this part. Please don't forget, the wrath of God revealed from heaven has been removed. God has done that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the wrath of God. That's good news, church. Like 10 of you believe it. That's cool stuff. You're no longer under the wrath of God. If you think God's angry with you, you're misunderstanding. God does punish his own in order to draw them into deeper relationship but God's wrath has been turned away God is in love with you that is God's own word you're no longer under the wrath of God because the price has been paid his wrath has been turned away from those who did deserve it to the one who did not deserve it because he stood there in your place Uh, Just one more thought. If you think this hasn't been theologically deep enough yet, I just want to take you to one more place, okay? Paul is not saying that God forgives us just to show that he is just. You following that? God is not forgiving us to show himself just. That actually would raise a question about God's justice. That would actually cause someone to say, well, God is just, therefore He should condemn criminals, because that would be justice. But if God simply punished sinners, would that not raise questions about His mercy? Because if the Bible says anything clearly, it says that He is just and He is merciful. If you haven't read that before, go to Exodus chapter 30 later today. God is both just and merciful, so we can't stand in contradiction to God's nature. But if God simply just punished people, it would raise questions about His mercy. Yet, if God had forgiven sin without a sacrifice, without some kind of a punishment, the charge of injustice would be just as valid, saying, well, something's gotta be taken care of that punishment. So, because a sacrifice was made, and because He Himself made the sacrifice, He is both just and the one who justifies. Is Paul not brilliant? Look at the way that this has been presented to you. So the cross of Jesus reveals to you both of those truths. Grace and justice lock lips, and they kiss each other. It's a pretty image, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking like, what? What are you saying? Well, just look with me on the screen. Look at Psalms. That thought is not unique to me. God said it this way, loving kindness and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other, God's justice and God's mercy, you remember that, that's an image, right, how else could that happen but God doing it, God says there's a condition though. There's only one condition by which this can be true in your life. Do you look at the last part of verse 26 closely? It says it very specifically. You'll see it on the screen. Who is this true of? Of the one who has faith in who, church? Jesus. Jesus. That's why there's not many paths. God says this is the path of the one who has faith in the propitiation that I provided. I bought you back. It cost me everything. This is the way. Faith in Jesus, so your faith accepts the gift that God presented to you, and God thereby justifies the person who believes. Your obligation is to believe. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that maybe you've struggled over what is this belief thing? What does that actually mean? How do I understand that? To help you, probably from a view maybe that you've never thought of before, I'm going to take you back in time to that very ancient day when there was an Ark of the Covenant. And the individuals had a command from God to bring blood before God, sacrificial blood to atone for the laws that had been broken. So when an individual representing the household, no matter how many people were in the household, the leader of that household had to bring a sacrificial animal to the priest. And before they turned the animal over to the priest, perhaps it was a spotless lamb It had to be a yearling, unblemished. The head of the household could place his hand on the head of the animal and say, I know I'm worthy of death. I know that there's sin on me, but I transfer my guilt. I transfer it to this sacrificial animal. And God would accept that. In the same way, the high priest placed his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal on behalf of the entire nation and transferred the guilt of the nation over till that sacrificial animal. And when they brought the blood of the unblemished animal before the Ark of the Covenant and the high priest sprinkled it on the mercy seat of God, God said, because of that sacrifice, because of that spotless blood, I atone... All my laws that have been broken. So when you look to Jesus, when you look to Him as your sacrifice, you have to acknowledge, I am a sinner. I deserve death. I stand condemned. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I know mercy. I know grace. I know forgiveness. That's why I wanted to remind you, church, of who you are are you are the redeemed of the Lord you've been forgiven let me remind you of the verse we started with this morning go with me on the screen again Colossians two fourteen. he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross If you think that sounds like perfect love, absolutely perfect love, would you say amen? There's something that perfect love does for you according to God's own word. Perfect love has an action. Look with me on the screen, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Wow, that's an incredible promise from God. You got issues of anxiety in your life this morning? Yeah, things you're fearful about, God says, I can take that away. I mean, if you're dealing with that, you really need to be praying about that. Remember who you are if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The absence of fear comes from knowing what you are. You are the redeemed of the Lord. God's people said what? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray together, church. Father, thank you for the simple truths you've presented in what looks like a complex passage. But because of the power of your Holy Spirit, you've given us the ability to be taught. You've showed us truth, and you've made the complex simple. Thank you, Father, for what you've given us. We stand before you as those who are redeemed. And I'm aware, Father, there may be some here today that are not in that place where they have relationship with you. Father, I pray that you continue through the power of your Holy Spirit to work. Show them, draw them to yourself. We pray for all this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.